Shalom, everyone, and welcome to episode two of our One Timothy series. So this will be fun, and when we kind of start getting into it, you know, as Paul really gets into it, I want to make our last episode a little shorter so we could devote the time to really going over as much of this material um, as we can. And while that will be impossible to some degree, especially with the audience of who these people are, We'll be covering that in a in a later episode. And, and the reason for that is because when we're reading any letter or any piece of literature, especially something like this by Paul, we, we have to take almost the whole book and analyze it against itself. A lot of times plots or identities or things like this will be revealed at the end of a piece of literature and it will make things start to make sense. You know, it's kind of like that surprise at the end of the movie where the whole movie starts to make sense. And I guess it wouldn't be too different here in Paul. So I don't want to jump to anything, but um, what we will be doing is we'll be spending a bit of a technical approach in, in these first couple episodes, kind of going over, or probably most of it, just going over these terms that we find. So chapter one is, is setting up the whole book. And, and since the pastoral epistles are usually grouped together, or at least one and two Timothy are supposed to be grouped together as, as we have no indication that the environment changed. And, and so whatever we understand from one Timothy, we can apply to two Timothy. A little bit different with Titus since the geographical and therefore the cultural location is entirely different. It's it basically helps us to begin reading once we can kind of establish what's being said. So obviously, chapter one is going to define the rest of the book. However, we see that in chapter one, Paul starts identifying these opponents of his, you know, warning Timothy about this, giving him a charge to stop these things. And then immediately in chapter two, he switches to the church structure. And then he'll eventually get back to the opponents and then back to church structure and then back to general instruction, particularly towards Timothy individually. So in that spirit, we will go over chapter one and then we'll jump into chapter two and continue on. And then we'll come back to chapter one to some extent. Now, typically, I, I, I discourage people from doing you know, major uh, word studies, basically. You know, I've discussed this to some extent, Bible study, Bible study, that, you know, it's, it gets a little dangerous when people know a little bit of Greek and they start really hyper-focusing on, like, what these words mean. And, and people think it's sufficient to go to Strong's or Blue Lair Bible. And, and while that has its place and word studies and semantics are obviously important, oftentimes, as I've said numerous times in translation, you're interpreting a sentence um, and then on a larger scale uh, paragraph and then a whole, a whole letter or book or section, etc. But this is somewhat exception because what we have in this first letter is we have a bunch of terms that do need to be defined to some degree. And, and this has its place in any piece of literature, but here we're trying to come up with a really specific um, identity for who Paul is speaking to. So, you know, with that being said, we're going to just kind of get right into it. <clears throat> so, here we begin, uh, beginning a chapter, 
1, you know, obviously, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So, these people are, you know, from verse 3, they're the um, heterodidascaline. You know, they're, they're the teaching contrary, teaching different doctrine um, to what Paul and Timothy are teaching. You know, the orthodox and accepted things. So, you know, verse 4 begins with mede prosekin, which we would understand is neither nor for mede, and, and give he to, you know, give oneself to, care for, or of, follow, or devote um, for, for prosekin. So, these people are not, or they're to be charged to not teach differently, nor, you know, so including both to basically give themselves over to these myths and endless genealogies. And the, this mede is interesting because it's not just that they're teaching different to doctrine. They are also, you know, devoting themselves to these myths and endless genealogies. So, obviously, these are two words of particular interest here. Uh, the first is muthois, and for myths, and that's a, it's a tale, story, fable, or legend. You know, oftentimes we think first of myths, you know, as in legends, like Greek mythology in this instance, but it's, it's often used in, in simply a falsehood sense or a contrast, like contrary to the truth sense. So, BDAG, the you know, the premier Greek lexicon, it, it adds to this historians concern for the truth of history as opposed to mythography, end quote. And it's typically used of fiction versus the truth. Um, it's used of myths such as by Plato concerning myths and Hades, but also by Plutarch of um, being useless fabrications with both Philo and Josephus, who were you know, Jews, considering them as errors. Um, Philo, specifically in De Congresso 53, calls them uh, mistakes that follow from inconclusive arguments, as Wall and Steele put it in their commentary. And, and Collins has some notes on these too. And in scripture, we find it used here in, in chapter 4, verse 7 of irreverent silly myths, you know, which we'll go into more detail there. And in 2 Timothy 4, 4 of people turning away from the truth and wandering into myths. You know, following the famous verse 3, when people will not endure sound doctrine, but accumulate for themselves teachers. And then also in Titus 1.14 of specifically Jewish myths. And, and finally in, in 2 Peter 1.16 of the apostles having not followed as it, as the scripture says, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So this really adds to Muthois perhaps being best understood as a mixture of falsehoods and myths in, in our sense, but something that's just contrary to truth, as in lying, something made up. And then we have um, our two terms, which is genealogias and aparantos. So our word aparantos simply means endless, never-ending, and uh, genealogias is, as we would expect, you know, where our English genealogies come from. It's pretty straightforward. 
it's it's only used here and in Titus and three nine of avoiding foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Some some believe the use of Kai um, here, which is and um, it connects these two, and that that is as in you know the myths you know which are the gene endless genealogies, but. But that's that's a, a typical argument, and I guess it can be made as endlessly, fruitlessly as these endless genealogies. Um, so we don't really know, and and that it, it seems it seems for and usually and is kind of having two things that are separate. You know, you have like the air and the water, and, and I guess the argument could be made for them to be connected, but it, it's it's anyone's anyone's game there so <clears throat> the next word we have is uh zetesis which is dispute questions controversies in, investigation debate argument and it's basically that of controversial questions or heated debate it's used in 1 timothy 6 4 of he who is as it says is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. It's also used in 2 Timothy 2.23 of have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And then Titus 3.9, <clears throat> as earlier with Muthois. And it's also used, so in John 3.25 of um, John the Baptist's disciples, you know, they're disputing or discussing over purity. And then, interestingly, Acts twenty five twenty of Festus asking Paul interrogative questions when he was in court. So it has this general, basically, a disputeful questions, and um, it just doesn't create something sound and something true and something firm or absolute, if you would. And then. You know, the word before that is paraakusin, and that just means present or cause. You know, it leads to and it creates these things. So he's saying avoid these, you know, these myths, you know, these, these basically untruthful things, um, these falsifications, endless, just never-ending genealogies, because all they do is they lead to just, just things that don't produce absolutes, just questions. And... The next phrase is actually really interesting. <clears throat> Following these, you know, we read malon et orkonomion theuten en peste in the Greek. And the first word is malon. It's, it's really emphatic, rather. That's what it is. So it means like rather, but almost as in like a greater degree, superior to. And there's this deep contrast between what these false people are teaching versus what Paul and Timothy are with some intensity and preferability of the latter. So it's these questions, these unanswered, you know, void of absolutes that are contrary to, to this term, which is really contested among people. And it's the orkonomion theo, and most translate, translations render this as godly edification or instruction. Um, and there's a minor textual variant here, but most people are still accepting of, you know, economy on. So perhaps reading from BDAG would be best for this. Um, 
For this word, they list three definitions as one, responsibility of management. So this would be functioning in a management sense. It's used uh, like this in Luke 16, 2 to 4, 1 Corinthians 9, 17, Colossians 1, 25, and Ephesians 3, 2. Second is a state of being arranged, arrangement, order, plan, such as Ephesians 3. And then finally, they have a program of instruction or training. So you can kind of see where the translations are going with this. But what BDAG adds is they say, for the third option, this seems to fit best in 1 Timothy 1.4, where said of the erroneous teachings of certain persons, they promote useless speculation, rather divine training that is in faith. However, they add, they said, if we follow option B, order or plan, it would be, and they propose a translation, endless speculative inquiry merely brings about contention instead of the realization of God's purpose, which has to do with faith. So it's difficult to choose which one we're going to go for. <clears throat> you know, if we have management, which Paul does use this word, and this is why semantics are important, you know, because you got to understand the pragmatics, you got to understand how this word is going to specifically be used. And, you know, we have management, we have arrangement, and then we have program of instruction, training, <clears throat> but they seem to prefer something that's a little bit of a mixture. And it's, it is difficult to choose which one. And this is something Knight wrestles with and um, in his commentary. And it's it's really influenced again on the pragmatical nature of these passages. It's also influenced on, you know, whether we read the didaskalin or didaskaloi words as instruction or doctrine or different instruction or different doctrine. And, and these two do overlap in synonymity, so it's a bit tricky. But um in his commentary, Knight proposes with, with some grammatical evidence that we should read it as, quote-unquote, the outworking administrative or stewardship of God's plan of salvation through the gospel and its communication. And he adds, the heterodoxy of the false teacher's uh, speculation is then contrary to the furthering of God's administration, which is brought about not by speculation, but in faith. But the definite article Paul ties oikonomion with empeste, which are, is our word for in faith, and indicates the realm in which the administration is accomplished. You know, that is N, or, you know, our in for in faith. And he says, should not be taken as referring to initial saving faith only, but to the trust relationship that is the seedbed in which God works and produces growth, that this wider view of faith is in view is seen by the fact that it is returned to in verse 5 as one of the means that Christians must use to bring about the goal of oikonomion and the attendant paragelia, which is our this word for charge, namely agape. And end quote. <clears throat> so Knight's proposal now of others is that is that this is basically God's plan which we see and in, in which we experience by faith. You know, God's overall administrative mission and plan. And this, this false, different teaching, you know, getting into falsehoods and endless genealogies is contrary to rather than the gospel. You know, they're having people turn off from the gospel, and it leads to questions and speculations. But I, I haven't seen someone take the, the view I have, but I'm, I'm sure there wouldn't be any resistance to it. Is that something that doesn't produce an absolute an answer? Is is something we should think about with these with these disputations, you know, or these questions. 
Um, and in the sphere of this household management reference of sorts, um, I'd like to add an excerpt from Wall's commentary on page 81. You know, and he begins this, I won't quote it all, but he he speaks of how, you know, in Hellenistic thought as early as Aristotle, the efficiently managed household, whether political, and he quotes 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, religious, 3.15, familial, 5.1 through 2, uh, follows time-tested patterns. And he goes on how basically the household structure was so important in this day, and it certainly was in the Greco-Roman world, and even more so in the Jewish world. But he says, the later reference to church as God's household in 3.15, and, and I'll interrupt him to add other areas, such as Ephesians 2, suggests that the theu and orkonomion theu is a subjunctive genitive. That is, the creator is the manager of creation. In faith, then, affirms the believer's trust in God's providential care of the world. The reader now understands that the continuation of Paul's mission following his departure is a peace with God's overall management of the world. So, this I would prefer this rendering that I'm, I'm proposing because basically what we see here is that their false teaching with these myths and endless genealogies, and they promote speculations. This is all contrary to God's plan. So we could we kind of see it as the gospel, and this will help us in our interpretation of what these myths and genealogies even are, because for some reason they're going against this administrative plan of God. And and this really is relevant when you when you think about how what false teaching does. You know, it's it's a lot less of what it is more about what it threatens to the gospel. You know, the gospel is always at risk. It's not really at risk with its power, but it's it's at risk with what people can do to it for other people. So Paul continues in verse 5, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So this charge, you know, again, the word is paragelia, which is, you know, just a word for charge. As we went over, kind of authoritative um, statement. And the word for aim is telos. Now, some translations, such as the King James, I believe, says, you know, the end of the commandment. And this word telos is really just means end goal, the point and direction of this. You can't really define telos as end, as in termination. And that has effect, obviously, on Romans 10, 14. And, and you can't really say it's the goal either. It's kind of a combination of these two, and it's, it's hard to translate such a thing. And telos and philosophy, you know, has this whole worldview and goal, like the whole substance of something, which something is leading to. So you're not just reading like, hey, this is our, this is the point of our charge or the way in which our charge is going to go about. It's kind of like this is the function, but the function that anticipates a, a goal to be reached, an active goal. And, and that's kind of what he's saying is, and it is love. It's agape, which the aim of our charge. And that comes from, that issues from three things. He lists a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And, and this is interesting. And, and, and this is just kind of my, the, the, my thoughts. And, and some commentators uh, note this as well, but I think there's a little bit of a theme here. So pure heart seems to be kind of a Hebraic expression is, you know, heart, soul, mind, and strength were basically synonymous, or, or probably they're really just all one. 
in the in the Hebraic mindset. And a pure heart is emphasized in the Old Testament, Second Temple period literature, and, and just Judaism in general. So it's something Paul would be um, accustomed with. And and this is kind of the Hebrew perspective. Now, a good conscious would definitely appeal to Greek and Hellenistic thought. It's also a deep concept within the New Testament to have a good conscious always, and conscious is always brought up. But it, it's it's it was very very predominant in Greek culture, especially with the philosophers and in philosophy in general of having a good conscious. So this could represent the Greek, and then finally we have the sincere faith, and that's obviously of the faith you have the true faith and this holding on to Yeshua, having the faith faithfully delivered. Uh, and and this is kind of like the Christian or the messianic aspect or the follower of the way, whatever it is you want. And it, it's kind of all three of these meshing together, which is really cool. So reading on to verse six, we have you know, certain persons by swerving from these. So obviously we're referring back to the pure heart, good conscience, and the sincere faith. They've wandered away into vain discussion. So our first word, you know, for certain persons, tenest, it's the same, it's some. You know, some people, some persons, certain people. And and our next is um astokesantes, and that this just simply means to miss the mark, you know, by swerving from these. They've missed the mark, they've swerved from this, they haven't hit it, but in it in an avoiding sense. So it's used in 1 Timothy 6, 20, not, or 21, forgive me, of avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swore from the faith. And then 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 18, you know, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermenius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So you know, seeing a little teaser, you're kind of seeing a little theme go if you're paying attention. Um, but we'll get into that later. And and then for turn aside, you know, we have exetra uh, sorry, exetra pesan, which is turn aside, you know, just go from and and not not follow, basically turn away from. You're going towards something you turn off. Then we have ace, which is just a, in, a preposition denoting going into or towards before, you know, as in entering or the, the anticipation of entering something in use or goal, etc. Um, finally, we have uh, mate logion, and this is only here. It's a, it's a rare word um, of simply, you know, vain, idle, not truthful, false, pointless talking. BDAGs actually adds a windbag as an example. And we typically think, you know, vain and idle. We don't really, we don't really make the connection there of what it really means. You know, obviously idle doesn't mean like standing still and it obviously doesn't mean idle isn't a false God. Um, it just means not truthful and just false, pointless, bad. And so these people, they're swerving from this charge, you know, of love. They're missing this mark, you know, of a good heart and conscience and faith, you know, and they have exotropists on. They're turning aside. They're going off 
away and wandering is a is a is a good word um to render it they're turning away into this false and idle pointless ridiculous talk and discussion and moving on to verse 7 you know we have these are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions our first is desiring it's uh delantes and it means like eagerly desiring and determining to be and it's typically translated would you know, as if they would be this and it, it it doesn't necessarily imply that they they have or they haven't succeeded in the thing but overwhelmingly used a desire a desire to be or to do something rather than more of a fixed position of actively being in it uh, mounts actually opens up his definition in a good way and he says to exercise the will properly by an unimpassioned operation to be willing. So they desire to be. And what they desire to be is the nomo didaskaloi. And this is best meant as simply, you know, teachers or, or lawyers of the law. It's compound of law and teacher. So instructor. So it it's used in Luke 5.17 and Acts 5.34. The first is Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. And the second of uh, Gamaliel or Gamaliel, you know, who was a teacher of the law. So it's, it's funny because you have a double negative here by Paul. Basically saying you know, they have no idea what they're talking about. And, and so they don't know what they're talking about at all. And then they don't understand what they say. And, and, you know, We read here without understanding either what they are saying. So they don't know what they're saying. And they don't even know about the things from which they're making these confident assertions. You know, they're just, it's a double negative of just not knowing. The confident assertions word is dia bibaiuntai, and it basically means strongly assert or insist. You know, it's used in t- Titus 3.8 of Titus insisting on these things. It's a strong notion of affirming and confidence. You know, they're confidently asserting these things, which ironically don't know what they're talking about. And they don't know anything about the things which they're trying to make these these things that they're insisting on. And reading on to verse 8, Paul says, Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And and this is in this but now sense. You know, we have a contrastive conjunction here, de. And it's typically used, you know, explaining and negating what was said previously. Sometimes it's referring back to some other prior statement, reaching back. And, 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 but most likely it's here, it's kind of Paul saying to Timothy, you know, but we, Timothy, you know, we know that the law is good, you know, rather than these people desiring to be teachers. And it is good, you know, that is if one uses it lawfully. So the day is kind of interesting here. It, it's an interjection, you could say, to, <clears throat> to what was being said, which we, we see. And the word here for lawfully is it's it's interesting. It's it's nominos, and it's basically wordplay of um of nomos, which is the word for law. So it's like nomosly or lawfully. Uh, the word's only used once elsewhere in two Timothy two five. Of an athlete is not crowned unless he keep, competes according to the rules. So perhaps rightfully or properly is a good rendering. But but here it's associated directly with the law, 
So it, it would obviously, we'd imagine it would be playing off the law for its specific meaning, which would be kind of like according to the law or, or lawly, you know, um, and lawfully is, is not a, is not really a bad fit. So in, in his commentary, Collins add to this in page 55 and he begins in an aside. So he's basically entreating this in the following two passages as an aside to Paul's mainstream of re- rhetoric. So he's saying, oh, these people desire to be teachers of law. And he says, oh, but, you know, we know that it's, it's good. He continues, the pastor offers a reflection on the law. He describes it as good, but with a provisio, that one lives in accordance with the law. And he notes some similarity with Paul's phrase here of um, to Josephus's Antiquities, Book 16, Section 2, Block 3, saying the tense of the verb, a subjunctive, genit- uh, a pr- a present subjunctive, sorry, suggests a reference to future conduct along with some hesitancy as to whether one can actually live in full accord with the law. The apostle himself had affirmed that everyone has sinned, um, including those under law. And he goes on to talk about Romans 1 to 2 and kind of argument Paul was making against the, the Jews. is He says they dared to teach others even as they themselves violate the precepts of the laws and were, and were prone to the same vices as the Gentiles were. So his mark to Josephus kind of He's picking up something that this is implying someone keeping the law by keeping it lawfully. You know, and he says he it's it's really interesting that he's basically using this. Collins is somewhat suggesting that he's using this in the same sense. And I would suggest that this is possible. He's using what he's about to say is the same that he does in Romans 1 to 2. He's using this against the audience in the same way that he was to the Jews there. Obviously, I wouldn't suggest it's identical, um, but we'll we'll kind of start picking up on this a little bit. And in in verse 9, we we, we keep reading, it says, understanding this, so basically like knowing this, you know, as in we know this, um, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, and sinners for the unholy and profane, uh, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and it continues into verse 10, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So like we said, you know, it's when he begins as saying, knowing this, and this is typical of Paul, used in the sense of adding on to something previously said or expounding upon a fact. He says the law is not laid down for the just. And and I like when translations use this because often this word kemai is rendered made or, or something to that effect. However, it has a bit more of a nuanced meaning. BDAG lists as follows, to be in a recumbent position, lie or recline, to be in a place so as to be on something or lie, and it's used, as they say, in a variety of transferred senses involving especially abstractions to exist, have place, or be there, be appointed, set, destined. And have some sub-meanings such as be, given, exist, um, or, or be valid of legal matters, which BDAG lists here for 1 Timothy 1.9, particularly for someone of law, 
another sub-meaning of occur, appear, be found, find oneself to be. It's used in scripture of literal lying down, but also abstractly as they're alluding to, like in Matthew 3.10, of the axe being laid to the trees, the roots. Matthew 5.14, of the city being set on a hill. 1 John 5.19, of the whole world lying in the power of evil one. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, of Paul and Timothy being destined for afflictions, etc., and, and with this, the meaning is still relatively obscure. Both all the words, we, you know, we establish by its surrounding words. And <clears throat> basically, it's it laid down as a much more appropriate rather than made. You know, Paul had a, a choice amount of words to be able to use here. And he used something that seems a little more accusative, you know, especially with this idea of, you know, the axe. It's almost like set down. The law is not set down, you know, for for the just, but but for it's laid down for the lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. And a short note, and actually going on to for, you know, verse eleven, it says, in accordance with the gospel, or it, sorry, forgive me. It continues ten, and whatever else is contrary sound doctrine. So he has these lists, this list of these people, and he says, and, and then whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, continuing in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I had been entrusted. So short note on this is there's obviously some speculation over um, what he uses for you know men who practice homosexuality. And, and the word here is arsenokoites. An interesting article on this is um, translate Arsenicotai 1 Corinthians 6 9, 1 Timothy 1 10. And it's by D.F. Wright. And it was uh, published in the Visuale Christiane. And it's December 1987, volume 41, number 4, in pages 396 to 398. So it's a pretty short article, but he, he does a really good argument showing how this is speaking of homosexuality. You know, and there's this issue, and a lot of times people try to twist and say, well, it's not really saying that, but but it is. Um, so there's actually an interesting kind of nature to these, this list, this vice list, we'll say. So if we read in the Greek, you know, and pay attention. We're going to read Anomois de Kai Anuaptaktois Asavesen Kai Hamar Talois Anosis Ois Kai Bebelois Patroluais Kai Metro Ois Andrafanois Pornois Arsena Quotois Andra Pedistes Sustes Epiorcois. So if you if you listen, you you see, hear all of those A's, you know, those A's. And, and grant A is typically used in Greek to mark a negative. You know, our earlier noted Collins um, actually notes this as a use of assonance, which is, which is coupled with omitting conjunctions. And, and he writes that this enhances the force of their rhetoric. So basically what he's saying is, is Paul's like rapid firing accusations against these people. And he's using all of these a a words you know a a a a a and and i'm inclined to agree with collins here you know and and paul then adds and whatever is 
else is contrary to sound doctrine. And and it's cool because, you know, this is our word for instruction um, and doctrine, and it's used alongside with um, um, hugio nusai, which is properly means healthy or sound, pure, etc. And it's, it's commonly used by Greek philosophers for healthy teaching. And this is pretty accurate here. You know, the sound doctrine is, is what this group false teaching is, is contrary to. And the, the, this vice list here, and it's in accordance, it's, it's, you know, in relation with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which Paul had been trusted with. And there, there's a lot going on here, really. Many jump immediately to see this list as just, just a compilation of sins and vices, you know, vice lists. So our conclusion is something like the law isn't for those who are saved, but for, you know, for those people, enter vice descriptions. But that's, that's not necessarily what this looks like. Our words like kalos for good and kemai or, or for made, they're never associated with nomos except for Romans 7.16. So they're never, you know, where it's the law is good. And it's a, this is an odd passage here, and we see little exposition f- we would expect for, say, a Jewish audience of someone just trying to teach people to keep the law. You know, we find nothing of any type of keeping the law following this. Uh, we don't really see anything before it. We have no explicit language other than this idea that these people want to be teachers of the law. You know, they're desiring, they're, they're determined to be this. And we would just expect some type of clarification for that. Also, this list differs drastically from such ones as, you know, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And, and this seems more accusatory. So, Collins, as we referred to earlier, and even Knight, as we do in most commentators, they're saying that this is from the Decalogue and, and also after, you know, so not just the, the 10 words, because it's not the 10 commandments, it's the, the 10 words, you know, there's an argument over if it's, you know, 10 or 11 or 13 imperatives, you know, do's. So, and, and mostly it's entreated as 13 imperatives. Um, but also, you know, in Exodus 21 and, and 22. So, I'm actually somewhat inclined to disagree with that, and, and I'll, I'll say why. So, when we read the list, it's lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, and perjurers. So, our first word, first off, this is all kind of out of order. So, when we read striking fathers and mothers, you know, this is in Exodus 21, 15. But then the enslavers, you know, the slave trade is in <clears throat> Exodus 21, 16, right after striking mothers and fathers. So, it's it's kind of a bit off out of order. There's, there's not much connection to, I mean, you can take the sexually immoral and you can attach it to adultery and, and then kind of play in with, you know, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that's fine. And I'm not necessarily saying these people are wrong, but, you know, we have 13 pairs. Let's just say we have 10 commandments here, you know. So for it to be the Decalogue, 
You have murder, which is obviously part of 10 words. Um, you have not committing adultery. You know, you have don't bear false witness. Um, but you don't really have this ungodly, this unruly, the sinners, unholy, profane, striking fathers and mothers, general sexual immorality, homosexuality, enslavers, and perjury. You you have it alluded to, but I just I think this is somewhat a weak connection. Now, looking at these words, <clears throat> you know, the first one for lawless is just those without law. So typically anomia, just without law, not having law. Now we don't, you know, this can be lawless in the in the literal sense, not in as in the um like the law breaking. It could just be lawless. I mean, it's used of Gentiles. You know, not implying sinfulness. I mean, obviously, everyone's sinful. Then we have, after that, disobedient, which is just really unruly people, like completely unruly. Third, we have ungodly, and then we have sinners. You know, that's pretty evident. Then we have unholy and then profane. You know, we have striking fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals, enslavers liars, perjurers, and, and this final one, perjurers, is, is false witness. Um, both these are related to Exodus 23, uh, 1 through 3 and 6 to 8. Interestingly, there are actually 13 terms here, so there could be some connection there. But here's why I think, it, it, it just again, this list makes little sense connectively as some try to suggest. And what I'm suggesting you know, along with this argument of assonance that Paul's using, he's creating a theme. And let's notice it by splitting this into seven groups. Group one is lawless and unruly. Group two is ungodly and sinners. Group three is unholy and profane. Group four is striking parents, murderers. Group five is sexually immoral, homosexuals. Group six is enslavers. Group seven is liars and false witness. So we see these groups basically expounding upon each other as heightening what each one is. Listen, we have lawless, those without law, and unruly, just completely disobedient. Then we have those who are ungodly and sinners. And then we have unholy and profane, striking parents and murderers, sexually immoral and homosexuals, and enslavers and liars and false witness. The second one is an exaggeration and a worse condition of the first. So to be without law is not as bad as being just rebellious and disobedient, unruly. You know, ungodly is definitely not being like God, but sinners and then unholy and then profane. The striking parents, you know, you're hitting your parents, that's awful. And then murderers. And then you have sexually immoral homosexuals. Like, not even just being sexually immoral, but doing that out of nature's order. And then you have liars, which is obviously bad, but then you have false witness, someone who is giving a false account of someone else. That's obviously a much worse version. You know, we could say all sin is sin, is that is true, but murdering your heart is not the same as murdering someone. Hitting your mom is bad, and don't do it, but murdering her is a little different. And this is what I think's going on here. I think Paul's really kind of enforcing this accusatory use here. 
And and then what's group six for? You know, enslavers. Um, probably because the word starts with A. Andropodistis. It's it's another A sound. Um, there's another illusion possible here, and it's something we'll go over in a future episode. And it's speculative, but it will it will tie in here. What I'm saying is that the, I think there's a theme here, an accusatory one, and one that may, as we will see, fit these false teachers. You know, rather than this being a, a gloss of lawless versus righteous or, you know, those prior to Messiah are now in him. The list is odd. It doesn't really fit Decalogue. It doesn't fit Exodus 20 to 22 conclusion. And nor does it fit one of these general doctrinal statements here that people are trying to present. You know, when you first look at it, it does. But when you start breaking it down, it makes a lot less sense. And we'll start bringing in certain other aspects when we return to this to these passages later in the, in the this series, but it just makes less sense of what the mainstream interpretation is. And I'm not, I'm just not prepared to do that. I don't believe what's actually at play here. And I don't think, I think it's less than a sweeping general treatise of the law. You know, I, I think it's something and that requires a much longer and larger discussion, but it's using it purposefully here against these opponents you know, and I'm just not inclined to say Paul is using this generally for the law and its applicability. You know, perhaps we can read the law is not laid down for like the lawlessness, but it's, you know, it's, it's this general disobedient, rebellious people with this compounding nature of who they are. And, you know, they, they've neglected faith, conscious pureness of heart. And it's, it's really no easy passage, you know, especially with Kemai and you know, for the word for made or laid down, um, having a particularly nuanced meaning in a sense. But it, it does make sense when you're applying it here. Now, the, the, the identity of the opponents will shed a great deal of light on our, our stalemate of sorts of exegesis here. Um, you know, granted, I'm a messianic and may have interpretive bias, but um, when I look at the text, I just, I just have hesitancy to interpret this the way everyone does. And, and there are generally two conclusions which people immediately come to when identifying the culprits here. You know, those are, those are Judaizers and then Gnostics and, and then a combination of both. You know, we have to look at the attributes of these people to identify who they are. You know, whether we have Jews, Gnostics, something in between. And, and Judaizers are naturally assumed, you know, particularly due to this, you know, desiring to be teachers of the law. And we know that there were Jews in Ephesus. You know, we went over this in Bible study, Bible study episode two. But also do Paul's letters in Ephesians, you know, in close proximity to the writing of this letter. And, and Gnosticism is an oftentimes neglected option for the antagonists. And we'll explore both of these. You know, and, but looking at these attributes will definitely help us unveil the truth a little bit and, and figuring out who these people are. But it, it's, it's important to look at the rest of the book to be able to decide this. But you know, in, re- in review, we, we have a, a pretty interesting thing going on here. You know, we have that these people are teaching contrary to Orthodox teaching, let's say, and they're giving themselves over to these myths, these falsehoods, and these endless genealogies. And this, this thing just promotes questions rather than God's plan. And the aim of our charge, Timothy, you know, is is pureness and love. You know, and this comes from good heart, conscience, and faith. You know, and some of these people, by by, you know, missing these, missing this mark, they've gone away. 
and they've turned off into this just vain talk. You know, and they, they want to be teachers. They don't know what they're talking about. And they don't even know what it means that they're making these insisting statements on. You know, but we know that the law is good if one uses it in accordance with the law. You know, for we know this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the righteous. Yeah, but for these, this, these wicked people and these things, these awful things, anything that's contrary to this healthy doctrine and instruction that we're giving, which is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And then we'll see that Timothy has been entrusted too. So that is it for this episode. I pray this was, you know, a blessing for everyone. You know, we got a little deep and everything, and I'm still getting acclimated to this whole podcast thing, and maybe that'll take some time. <laughs> um, you know, tongue likes to get twisted on things, but it's all right. We do what the Lord wants us to do. But I'm excited for the rest of this. Um, you know, this is definitely a, a controversial uh, epistle and book as a whole, but it'll be really cool to go over. And as I went over in the first episode, it's very relevant to our times, but we also need to step out of our times and get back into Paul's to be able to identify who these people are, what these things are. And, and I encourage you when you're going along with this, just to, just to look at what it says, you know, review what we, what we went over with. Um, I'll be releasing a notes section to these, you know, in time, just so everyone can kind of check back with, with what I said and, and test the word and develop your own thoughts. But these are interesting terms. It's good to break down the Bible and the word and especially letters and epistles like Paul's and kind of see what's being said. So pray you all have a blessed night, day, whenever you're listening to this. And shalom, shalom. Shalom.